Okay, let's get started. Uh, I just wanted to remind you that I have been putting the lectures on iTunes U. So um, there is a, if you just go to uh, itunes.mtu.edu, it'll redirect you to this, but you know how to get to iTunes U. If you do go to uh, iTunes, um, you can navigate towards this class and then you can, oh yeah, I agree, whatever. You can synchronize and you can listen to my soulful, sweet sounds even on Sunday afternoons. Practice your regression. You play it while you're sleeping, you know, subliminal. <laughs> yeah, this, is, this isn't exactly working, is it? How do we? No, no thanks. Agree, sure, whatever. Go to the iTunes store. Do what I, do what I told you. Uh, if, if you don't use iTunes, um, I'm not trying to force uh, Apple's OS on you. I think you can do this in the lab. I can uh, convert these tracks to, um, to MP3s and just put them on the website if you really want them that way. That's fine by me. But um, they, I just wanted to show you they are there. I haven't got a cool logo. I once hired an undergrad to make a logo for my, uh, my modeling class. And he, he violated uh, Michigan Tech's style rule and, and put, um, if, you, if you could see this, this is actually a wood grain pattern on Michigan Tech logo. That's not approved. Um, but anyway, so I have, all I've got is this <laughs> default logo, but the, um, the lectures are up there. So anyway, that's it for that. Yeah, that's right. It's the it's the most popular iTunes U at Michigan Tech, <laughs> which means somebody downloaded it once. Um, <laughs> in comparison to all the others, uh, I wanted to go. I promised you I would go through a worked example of simple linear regression. I want to go through that today. If you'd like, um, I can take some. If there are any questions beforehand. And I have to apologize. I don't know why. I have a bit of a headache, which I never get headaches. So if I seem a little less chipper than usual, I hope you'll forgive me. I never get headaches, so ever. So I have sympathy for those of you that do. Okay, no questions. Then we'll just leap into the example. I'll put this script up on the class webpage. Uh, this is in our studio. Is that big enough for everyone to see? I know it's not huge, but we'll, we'll struggle for space if I make it much bigger than that. Um, we do have proposals, by the way, to renovate this classroom because it's currently circa 1967 when the building was built. So we'll see if that, if that changes and maybe we'll have a bigger screen or we'll just, I don't know, we'll just start beaming thoughts straight into your head. Who are we talking, who was I talking to about that? Learning regression was like the matrix, you know? You lay back in the chair and inject the, the, the computer connector and just uploads regression, you know, hit me again. Oh goodness! Yeah, that you end up you end up uh, down the hill in engineering. <laughs> okay, so this is an example from Montgomery Peck and Binning's text. This is the text we used to use in the class. It's actually a good text. Uh, I think it's a good text, but it is um, engineer, engineer, engineer. And as you can see from this example, it's going to be an engineering example. And so I, I do think that um, our text our text shoots a little lower. Uh, which is fine because the class here is mixed and you guys have a variety of background from I hate and wish I never had to be here to could you go a little faster Robert I hit me again so so we're gonna we're gonna uh, I think that the current text is better but if you do look for a resource if you want a more comprehensive with more of the background theory and uh, not proofs per se but but more equations more background theory um, this is a good text but anyway it's an example from Montgomery Peck and Vinning uh, the rocket propellant data. So I just wanted to, to go through, and the purpose of this exercise here is to essentially demonstrate what I've been writing on the blackboard, show you some additional examples in R. This should scale to other coding examples uh, as well and, and launch you off into the next homework assignment, which I have to put together for you uh, soon. So, okay, here's the example. A rocket motor a rocket motor is manufactured by bonding an igniter propellant and a sustainer propellant to get, you're just getting excited already, right? Uh, inside a metal housing, the shear strength of the bond between the two types of propellant is an important quality characteristic. It is suspected that shear strength is related to the age and weeks of the batch of sustainer propellant. 20 observations on shear strength and the age of the corresponding batch have been collected and are shown in table 2.1. I'll show them to you in a minute. Um, a scatter diagram suggests a strong statistical relationship between shear strength and propellant age, and a linear regression seems reasonable. Okay, so uh, what I've done here 
is just downloaded this, the, uh, the data set from Montgomery Peck and Vinning and, oops, it's up here, environment. Here's what the propellant data look like. 20 observations, uh, shear strength and age, all right? And again, remember the example says that um, it is suspected that shear strength is related to age in weeks. Okay, so we, we have not only a relationship, but likely it's causal. The older the propellant, the less the shear strength or more. I can't remember which one it is, but we'll find out in a minute. Okay, so for simplicity, um, what I've done in this example is what I teach you not to do, or at least what I tell you not to do most of the time, and that's to extract the columns out of the data frame and assign them to individual vectors. So I've pulled prop dollar sign age, that's the, the data frame called prop dollar sign says give me the column age and I put it in X and I pulled shear out and put it in Y. Just for simplicity, since I'm going to work the example by hand, usually I'm, I'll encourage you to never do that, but I wanted to show you, get us all on the common page with vocabulary. So the question here, have we got it right? We can uh, plot the graphic of shear strength against age. And the text says, suggests there's a strong statistical relationship between shear strength and age, and the tentative assumption of a straight line model appears to be reasonable. And I've plotted age on the x-axis. That's our predictor. The response is shear strength on the y-axis. It looks like it's a straight line with a negative slope, and a straight line probably approximates this really well. So I've, I've done the, the regression by hand with this little batch of code, just using the formulas that I put on the board that you'll never use. And you'll never do this, but I wanted to show you that you can. And you get the same answer. If you want, it's a good um, exercise in just coding in R. And I, I like to confirm. I'm, uh, maybe it's because when I was 19 years old, my mom had a friend that worked for a bank and got me a job as a bank teller. Banks always work on double entry counting, right? You know you got everything right because your debits add up to your credit, so I like to confirm things. If I do it two different ways and I get the same answer, I've either creatively made the same mistake twice, because I've had to have made the same mistake two different ways, or I actually understood it and got it right. So what, what's the result? There's our slope and intercept. All I've used is the formulas for sum of products x, y, sum of squared x and y, calculated the means, then just put the formulas in as we wrote them on the board, and I've assigned them to these objects, b1 and b0, for the slope and intercept. By typing them in, r just returns the values. So we have get a slope of negative 37 and an intercept of 26.27. r, when you graph by default, picks the range for you. If you wanted to graph this and force it to show you the y-axis, you could. You could set the x limit on the graphic so that 0 showed up here. But you can see that. Does this look like a, ne a negative slope? Yes. Does it look like it's changing about about 37, uh, decrease of 37 in shear strength. I don't know what the units were, kilopascals or some engineering thing. Um, that was supposed to be funny. <laughs> it's declining about 37 for every year of propellant. So go to six, you're dropping about 37 units on average. And if you were to draw this line back out to age zero, you'd get an intercept about 26, 27, looks about right. All right, so I'm pretty convinced that we've got this right. And now what I'm gonna do is plot the regression line. Now all I've done here by issuing the plot command again was to re it's just, I just copied and pasted it down from the top. I've, I've just recreated the graphic. It was still there, but I recreated it here. And I used the lines command to put a line on the graph. Lines assumes an xy, so I've given it the values of x. And then b0 plus b1 times x are the fitted values, y, the, the correspond to the line. So that's... that's um, my uh, lines. There you go. PCH19. Uh, that stands for plotting character. And so PCH19 means give me a solid filled dot. And if you do, if you ever do, uh, that's a good question. The plotting characters are, um, plotting has a lot of options to it. I used to always argue vociferously that R was so much better than SAS, but there are actually a lot of point and click systems that are easier still. The problem is trying to remember what all the options are and where they go. PCH, you may or may not find it actually in here. I think it'll say, if you look at the help for plot, that it says arguments to be passed. You got x, y, and dot, dot, dot. Okay. So 
the syntax is X, Y, and a whole bunch of other things that you need to memorize. <laughs> arguments may be passed such as graphical parameters. Many methods will accept the following arguments. These are just some examples. The best way for me to remember what all these options are is look at past code I've written. Second best is that book called R Graphics, but if you don't have an extra hundred bucks lying around, which most grad students don't, then you send me an email and say, I remember you did a graph once where you had these filled dots. Can you tell me how to do that? Go to Stack Exchange or Google it. I like the book. I actually don't use it that often. I tend to just draw from my past code. But PCH gives you the filled. There's all sorts of different options you can use for R. Again, please, if you're, if you're, it's easy for me to, well, I'm not as good as I used to be, but it's easy for me to send you an email. So if you, if you, you remember I did something, but you don't remember how, just send me an email. I'm happy to, to give you an answer. Okay. Any other questions? Notice again, I didn't actually plot X and Y here. I went and grabbed those columns from the data frame, prop dollar sign age and prop dollar sign shear. Okay, fit statistics. We talked about fit statistics, so we can calculate the sums of squared regression and residual, the mean squared error, just following the formulas that I gave you in class, and there's our standard error of the estimate, 96.1. Remember, the standard error is the residual variability around the regression line. It's not truly a standard error. It's a square root residual variance, but most textbooks call it standard error of the estimate. It has the same units as y, so that's 96 kilopascals or whatever. Did I? It should, I should be. PSI, there you go, close enough. 96 PSI, and um, yeah. So we can use just graphically um, R to take a look at what we might call the empirical rule. The standard error of the estimate is the residual variance around the regression line. If you met the regression assumptions that the, error, the residuals are identically independent and identically distributed following a normal distribution, if you meet these assumptions, then the standard things we know about the normal distribution apply. That is, about 68% of all the observations should be plus or minus one standard deviation of the mean, although in this case it's misnamed a standard error. So between the, red, the, the two red lines should be 68% of the observations. All I've done up here is plotted x, and um, this is the fitted values plus one standard error, the fitted values minus one standard error. Here I've done it plus two standard errors in blue, minus two standard errors. So 96% of the observations, or 96 should fall, plus or minus two, and it's just about right. Normally, we don't ever graph or think of these. We should, though, because it's a nice way of, of knowing if, the, if you don't have a plot, if someone just reports a regression, it's a nice way of knowing what the scatter plot looks like. All right, we can test the significance with the overall F test. Uh, I've just calculated again using the same formula, calculated the mean squared regression, the mean squared residual, our calculated F statistic, and it's 165.37. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you want to evaluate the standard uh, hypothesis test for significance of a regression, the null hypothesis is that the ratio of the variances is equal to 1, the alternative is that it's greater to 1, more signal than noise. We need to talk to our reference distribution, so I've used PF and QF here. And I also wanted to remind you there's two ways to evaluate a statistical test always. You can go to the, the distribution and you can find the probability associated with your calculated statistic. That's what PF is going to give us. Or we can go to the distribution and find the critical quantile. That's what QF is going to give us. So here we've got the two values. So if I give you PF, it says it's 1. What does that mean? Well, these probability functions, these density functions that return probabilities always give you the probability left of the quantile you supply. So I applied our, supplied our calculated F quantile, and I've told it it's got 1 and n minus 2 degrees of freedom. Those are the degrees of freedom that come from the two variances that we use to calculate it, and it gave me a value of 1. That means the probability to the left of my calculated F statistic is, is essentially 1. It's less than one, but it's with so many decimal places that it rounds to essentially one. Okay? So that means we're definitely out there in the rejection region. Less than if you, one minus this gives us the probability to the right of our test statistic. One minus one is zero. We're way off in the right-hand tail. Not surprisingly, because the critical F quantile at alpha equals 0.05 is 4.4, but our test statistic is 165. We're way off in you know, the Yukon Territory or some far place far away from uh, our test statistic. Just for fun, 
I put a couple other options in here, which is using the greater than sign as a comparison operator. And you can see that when I run those two things, I've simply asked it, is the probability greater than 0.95? If it is, it's true and we reject. Or is our F calculated greater than this thing, which is our F critical? It's true, reject. So if you want to write code that returns functions to you, you can paste some text in there if you want to, and you can make some fancy stuff. Eventually, we all get to use our own shortcuts. And that makes fun. Any questions? This is pretty straightforward, but I, I, I think it's useful to work through. OK, well, we're never actually going to do that by hand. We're going to use the LM function in R. And here it is, the most compact possible notation that you can see. Okay? The LM function, you supply it the response variable, a tilde, and the predictor variable or variables, because we're going to move shortly into multiple regression. And I said data equals prop. I actually didn't even need the data equals part. If you supply a data frame in here, R is going to recognize that and assume that's where it's supposed to grab the variables from. It happens that shear and age are columns in the data frame called prop. So I could have made this even more compact and just left that data equals part out. This is the way I suggest you do it. Don't pull shear out and put it into a variable called y and prop out and put it in a variable called x. This keeps it simple, means that it grabs your data directly from prop. If you need to fix prop, because often we have data sets that require intermediate processing. I've measured trees in plots. I need to calculate basal area in my plot and then use that for my regression. Well, if I made an error, I'll just recalculate it and I don't have to rewrite this code or I never worry about getting a different x or y and it simplifies your code because if you're fitting multiple regressions, with different y's and x's, but you want to call them x and y all the time. Did I get the right one, or I got to write this, run this little piece of code here? You'll you'll find out the hard way. I this is a uh, I really strongly recommend you do it that way. All right, I've mentioned this before, but everything in R can be stored in an object. So here I've taken the output from the LM function and I've stored it in an object called myreg. And of course, if you just type the name of an object, R tells you what's inside it. We can even ask R. What kind of object that is? Is that object a list? Why, lo and behold, my reg is a list. So I've used a function. There's almost there's a function for everything in R just to ask, is list. There may be a function called type. I don't know. I've never tried. But if it wasn't a list, it would have said false. The my reg object is a list, and lists have parts. You can ask what those parts are. What are the attributes of myreg? Myreg has a bunch of names. There's coefficients, rank, QR, which is a decomposition of the matrices inside, what the call was to the function, the residuals, the fitted values, so forth. You can figure out what much of those are. And it has a class, which is called linear model. So if you want, you can actually type myreg dollar sign residuals, and you get them all. There they are. Will you ever do this? Well, you will. <laughs> Ms. Matt and I have talked about this already. But um, you, don't, you often do not, most of the time, you will not need to go into the R object and extract the parts. What you're going to do instead is you're just going to say, well, I want to see more detail on this. I'm going to do summary. And I'll, it's actually lower in my code. I'll, I'll look at the summary function. And the summary function returns a whole bunch of information, the standard information that you would use to evaluate your regression. Okay. So it gives you the call. That was one of the parts. It gives you some summary statistics about the residuals, their distribution, the minimum, the first quartile, median, third quartile, and the maximum, your estimate of the coefficients. It gives you their standard errors. Remember, this t value is the t value for the null hypothesis that this thing is equal to 0. You can ask other hypotheses if you want against the alternative that it's not zero. And there's the p-value greater than absolute t, so we just always look in the right tail. These are always, this, this t-test, is the alternative is always a not equal zero. So we just put absolute in here so we're on the right tail so we don't have to mess around with seeing negative or having to worry about negatives. It has some significance codes so you can look quickly. Three stars is awesome. And then some summary statistics. The residual standard error, that's also known as the standard error of the estimate. Square root residual variance, that's your residual standard error. I wish whoever invented regression had come up with standard terminology. 
your R squared, the adjusted R squared, which we'll get to in multiple regression, is reduced a bit for the number. And there's your F statistic, the same one I calculated with the degrees of freedom and the associated p-value. And I mentioned to you that in simple linear regression, this overall F test is the same as the t-test for this thing being equal to zero. So lo and behold, the exact p-value here is reported. They're exactly the same because they're equivalent tests that'll only happen in linear regression. Oops. Okay, so returning back to doing things the hard way, you can calculate these things by hand and uh, you get the same uh, quant t quantiles uh, that we did in the summary and I just mentioned this summary so we, we can see that there. Some things you can also do with other functions is you can, you can put confidence intervals on regression coefficients using the confint function. So right away there's your confidence, your 95% confidence interval on your regression intercept and your regression slope. I don't, I don't think I've ever used that for any practical purposes, but, but you might be interested in it. And R has a function that can do predictions for you. So we've supply it the predict function uh, supply the predict function with my reg and some new value. So here's my reg. That's the fitted regression object. So if you give it that whole fitted regression object, it has all the information that R needs to generate a prediction for you. You have to give it a new value, something to predict, some value of X. It has to be a data frame, and the name, there has to be a name of a column that matches the name that's embedded inside the R object. X was called age. If I put in here new age, it would give me an error. So I'm giving it a data frame with age equals 20. You can give it a, you can give it a vector of ages. You can give it 100 new values you want to generate predictions for. The neat thing about R is that we can also generate interval estimates. So what I've built out here, I've just replotted the data, and I've plotted the line. I've used a different function here, AB line with the coefficient. So I've actually gone to the MyReg object, extracted the coefficients and fitted an AB line to it. Just a, a line with a slope of B and intercept of A are smart enough to figure out which is which. Now I'm going to create some new data and then plot the data on the graph. ND is, I always use that for new data. I made up some values. They're going to be stored in a data frame. They're going to have a column named age. And the new data is a sequence from 2 to 25 in increments of 0.1. So 2, 2.1, 2.2, 2.3, da 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 to 25 corresponds with the interesting range to me of my x variable. So these are some pretend x data. Then I've created ci as a data frame using the predict function. I'm taking the myreg object. I'm generating predictions using my new data. And then I'm also generating confidence intervals. Those are confidence intervals on each of those Y hats, the fitted values. And I'm storing those in a data frame. And if you'd like to see that, we can look at it right here. It's in our environment. There's CI. This is what it produces, the fitted value and the upper and lower 95% confidence interval on the fitted value. Then I've taken and I've plotted them. I've plotted the X value from new data age, and the lower confidence interval that corresponds to it, and I've made it dark orange, because I really like that dark orange, and I don't know why. It may have been Halloween when I first used this. And then I plotted the upper one here. So there's your 95% confidence intervals on the regression surface. These are confidence intervals. They're for the fitted values. You can see there's a curve to them. Right? They get wider as you go out because the further away you get from the mean, the less confident you are in the exact position of that line. We know that the line has to go through the mean of x and y. So the further you get, the less confident you are from the mean of, of y. Sorry, from further you get from the mean of x, the less confident you are in the exact position of that line. Okay. Now we can also put some uh, prediction intervals on there. And what I wanted to show you is that the prediction intervals are indeed wider than the uh, intervals, confidence intervals for the line itself. They, they have a curve, but you can't see it very well because it's, not, it's very gentle. It's, it's dominated a little bit by the, the, uh, the uncertainty in the, where the next value is going to come from. 
And all I did, the only difference here, by the way, when I, when I wrote this, I wrote those four lines of code to get the confidence interval plotting. Once I had that perfect, and this is something I encourage you to think of too, is I, once you got that exactly the way you want it, copy, paste, and I changed one word. Changed it from confidence to prediction, uh, and then this other word, dark red, to dark red from orange. Boom, there it is. Recycle your code. You know, we live in a world where I was looking at a, a video of the, uh, it was the 30th anniversary of the Macintosh computer and a presentation by Steve Jobs, all excited about this new thing called the three and a half inch floppy. And he said, this computer has 128K bytes of memory. You know, we lived in a time when we wanted compact code back then because it took up lots of space. But now a terabyte hard drive, which is, what is a terabyte? Megabyte, gigabyte, terabyte? It's like a hundred thousand, no, what is that, a million kilobytes? I can't remember. There's so many zeros you lose track. It, the amount of uh, space that one of these little scripts take, takes up is trivial compared to that pirate video of, of Batman you downloaded off at BitTorrent yesterday. So don't worry about long scripts. You didn't really do that, right? My son got a computer, and a week later, I got a letter from Charter. <laughs> <laughs> a week. It took a week. <laughs> Think about that. Boom. We've noticed that there's a computer at your house that's hosting pirated movies. Uh, okay. <laughs> that happened. And you can also generate scatter plots of other things that are important. We haven't talked a lot about um, residuals or using residuals as diagnostics. We will a little bit later in the class. But here's just an example. I have actually accessed the my, maybe I lied earlier or at least exaggerated. I am using the MyReg object. I've taken the fitted values and the residuals straight out of it and then just plotted them here. And you can see that uh, the residuals are fairly tightly clustered around the line and there's no pattern. That's what we look for in scatter plots of residuals. And we'll talk about using residuals as diagnostics a bit more. And then AB line H equals zero just says give me a horizontal line at zero. Okay. One thing you can do too is most, many things in R have, uh, have attributes that allow you to do, it's my reg. That, a lot, that, that have actions on them. So if you just plot my reg, says hit return to CNET plot, you're going to get four plots. Here's the first one, residuals versus fitted. It's almost exactly what I just plotted, except this has a non-parametric regression smoother put on it, which is there to help you see if there's a trend in the residuals. And in regression, we want there to be no trend in the residuals. The bigger the trend, the less. Remember that uh, boiling point data I showed you where there was a systematic trend in the residuals? That actually it was the log of of temperature that we wanted? Well, we want no trend in the residuals. It actually labels which observation in your data frame are associated with these highly, most unusual points. So that's the sixth observation and the fifth. If you suspect them, you might want to return to them. Then you get some other things. There's a QQ plot right away. That, by the way, is a perfectly decent QQ plot. I wouldn't worry about that. Close enough. And then you get some other interesting things, scale location. So we've got fitted against studentized residuals. We'll talk a little bit about that. And you get residuals versus leverage. Uh, Cook's distance is a metric that gives you some idea of the leverage of your points, how much they affect the regression line. And we'll talk about this later in class. But if you get Cook's distance values that are significant enough, you should, again, it's not surprising. These are the ones that we identified earlier as being far away. Once you get a certain threshold of Cook's distance, you need to look at them because they become highly influential on the exact position of the line. Now, for most of us up here in natural resources, the, the absolute precision of that regression line is not necessarily that important to you. People don't live or die and there's not usually money attached to it. But I think you can imagine in econometrics, in medicine, the exact position of these lines are of extreme importance to e, uh, E.J. Lilly or E.I. Lilly or what, Pfizer, you know? Extrapolate that out, millions apply. And so in some disciplines, there's a tremendous amount of attention put into leverage on regression points and knowing how close you've fitted the line because money or lives are at stake. Usually it's, you know, trilliums and and snail darters and other unimportant things that matter up here. Douglas firs and 
soil carbon are, I mean, they all, they're important, but if you get the regression slope off by one-tenth of one percent, people don't live or die, right? And you're not going to get sued either. Okay. All right. Any questions at all about that? That was a worked example. Yes, sir? So when you're doing your research and you get to this point, do you, do you cite R or do you cite where it came from in R? For, for referencing what aspect you just used. My, my, my recommendation would be, if you're fitting regressions and, and you're publishing the results of that in, in a journal article, you would somewhere, if, it, if you had a significant amount of regression in there, somewhere you would say um, statistical analyses were completed in R, and then you would cite R, and that would be the end of it. Really? Okay. No, no further than that. If you, if you had to draw a package because it's not significant enough to be part of base R, or because there are multiple competing packages, you might cite the package and the package author. And I have done that in my papers. If I had to use the LM, uh, NLME function for nonlinear mixed effects models versus LME4, there's two different competing packages in R. And I would cite the exact package. Sometimes you wouldn't, because most people are not going to try and reproduce your results. And R is not, no one's going to doubt the quality of R for analyses. I certainly haven't seen it. Ever. No one said, I don't think you should have used R, you should use SAS. You know, so. And we're nowhere near out in the experimental fringes of statistics where someone might say, well, I know that package has an error. Any other questions? Okay. I will put that script up on the website and actually um, I'll put a citation to this or maybe I'll, put the, I'll just put the data up. Um, so if you did want to run it, you can. And um, there's not a lot in there. I mean, you can reuse some of it, but I wanted you to see where all those hand calculations that you did in some other class would have led you if you just had the LM function in R and you knew how to upload a CSV. All right. Well, there's something to be said uh, for muscle memory. Um, all right. We don't need to save that. Okay, before we shift gears into uh, talking about multiple linear regression, I wanted to introduce a fun topic, which is the idea of doing least squares which is the way we've learned to estimate the regression coefficients uh, and comparing that to an alternative called maximum likelihood. Anybody heard of maximum likelihood? One of you, two of you, three of you, a few of you. Okay. Maximum likelihood estimate, estimation uh, means finding estimates of the parameters in your problem that make the data to be highly probable. It flips around the general question you might think of. You know, more or what I want to find normally are the coefficients that are the best. Well, maximum likelihood says, well, there's a whole, possibility, whole, whole range of possible coefficient values for a regression. Which ones are, uh, are most likely to have generated the data that I collected? The ones that are most likely to have generated the data that I collected are probably the best estimates of the coefficients. So this means finding the coefficients. that make the data most likely. And I like likelihood because it has two eyes. It's just something cool about the word likelihood. Um, so here's an example that I'll use for you to illustrate this. So let's consider uh, a normal population with a standard deviation of 10. hypothetical, so there's some units attached to that, but we don't know what they are. Um, but we don't know what the population mean is. And we go out and we collect three observations. We get 250 for the first 
that should be a one, two. And just so I get this correct, let me refer to what I got. 250, 265, and 259. I really like maximum likelihood because once I figured it out, it just made a tremendous amount of sense to me. So what value of a population mean is most consistent with a random sample of these data? So you, if you consider that, if we've said the population, that's the, that's the worst x-axis I've drawn in a long time. Consider a population. It's got to be normally distributed. It has sigma of 10. Let's say it had, as a hypothetical mean, 230. Okay. Where are our data points? Well, we've got a 250 out here. We've got a 259. And we've got a 260 out here. And contrast that with an alternative assumption about the population mean. These should have the same standard deviation, by the way. And the number I've used in my example is 259. Then we've got another one here that's 260 in our observations, and we've got a 250 here. All right. Both of these distributions have uh, means with them. Which distribution makes the data most likely? Well, it's, it should be uh, intuitive to you that the pr what this distribution is telling you is the, 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 the frequency the, of observations as a function of their quantile values. In a normal distribution, most of the data are near the middle. And as you get further away, those observations become less and less likely. Is it possible if the true population mean is 230 and you draw three random numbers to get those three? Absolutely. But is it more or less likely than if the true population mean is 259? Less, much less likely. So 259 is more likely to be the population mean than 230. Okay? We use the density in maximum likelihood estimation to come up with our estimate of the population mean. Now, we've said that the observations follow a normal distribution. Since I'm going to have to write it, I'm going to need my notes. I don't have the normal distribution memorized. The, the function value for a normal is 1 over 2 pi sigma square root e to the 1 minus mu over sigma, like that. All right. So you can evaluate. This is the normal distribution. It's the equation for the, for the probability density function for the normal distribution. So you can evaluate this distribution for our set of observations that I just erased. So I'll put in here mu equals 230 and mu equals 259. We know that sigma is equal to 10, and we have three possible values. We had 250, 259, and 260. If you plug those through, you get these horrible numbers, 0 0.005399. What am I doing here? All I'm doing is plugging in the values for sigma, the values for mu, and the values for y into the equation and evaluating it. And I did this in a spreadsheet because it's a lot more fun than trying to do it with a calculator. 039894. Okay. So these are the, the densities. They're not probabilities because you know the probability from a continuous distribution of observing any given number is zero. But what they are are the heights of the density at those points. 
they're relatively arbitrary units, but they do reflect a comparative probability of observing those individual values. Does this make sense to you? Because I want to erase this. So one of the properties of probability is that if observations are uh, independent and identically distributed, then the joint probability is the product of the marginal probability. So if your observations are IID, they don't have to be IID normal. They just have to be independent and identically distributed following some distribution. Then the joint probability, meaning the probability of getting those three together from a random draw of three, is equal to the product of the marginal probability. Meaning that we can just multiply these three together to get the joint probability. We write that using uh, long, what is it, what does I about to say? We write this using annoyingly long notation. The joint probability of getting y1, y2, and y3 given some value of mu and sigma is equal to the product of the marginal probability. So that's given y1 given mu and sigma times y2 given mu. Isn't all this notation annoying? y3 given mu and sigma. Ugh. Why is this important? Because we call this thing here, this thing here we call the likelihood. And you can work it out. Now, the maximum likelihood estimate then of our unknown parameter is the value for that parameter that makes the joint probability the highest, or maximizes it. The maximum likelihood estimate of mu is the value that maximizes the likelihood. Doesn't this seem annoyingly complicated when we just spent all that time figuring out least squares? Well, the trick is the maximum likelihood is your friend when you get to complex uh, assumptions about the distribution of the residuals. So what we're showing, or what I'm showing you right now, is the situation where we potentially have simple assumptions about the distributions of the residuals. They're IID normal. How many times is that the case? If you're fitting a regression to predict tree height as a function of age, and you've collected observations of tree heights and age to fit, to fit your regression from trees in plots. You might ask first, are they going to be normally distributed? Is height normally distributed for any given value of age? It's probably normally distributed. Is it identically distributed? Actually, it's not. Because for young trees, the variance of observed heights for a tree that's age one is pretty small. But a tree that's age 1,000, and they're out there, folks, they're very large. Maybe 300-year-old sugar maples. They could be anything from this tall to 100 feet tall. So the variance is not constant. And are they independent? They're not because they come from, they're clustered in plots. A tree that's age 10 in a given plot, its height is probably a lot similar to its neighbors than it is to a tree in another plot somewhere in Maine. So these assumptions of IID normal fall down. So how do you find the maximum likelihood estimate? Either a systematic numerical search or using some analytical solution. And here's the analytical solution. It's convenient sometimes to maximize the log likelihood because both give the same solution. We could take advantage of the properties of logarithms that I always forget. Um, we usually, usually maximize the log of the likelihood. Why? Because to use the, the notation, if some value g of y is equal to the, pro the 
product of y. Look at this notation. If we'll say some function of y is this joint product of y, then if we take the log of this function, then we get the, um, the sum of the logs of y. Why is that useful? Because uh, it's often a lot easier to maximize the sum of something than it is to maximize the product of something. Now, it can be shown that the maximum likelihood estimate for in simple random sampling, if your IID is, um, is the sample mean, so maximum likelihood estimate for the population mean is the sample mean if your IID and the maximum likelihood estimate for the standard or the variance is equal to our usual formula is our usual formula and I won't show them to you but I invite you to take a class in mathematical statistics if you're interested if that's necessary why are you talking about this, Robert? Because you're going to probably end up using maximum likelihood to fit some regression models in your research if you have any correlation whatsoever, whether you've taken mathematical statistics or not. You're going to end up fitting a, um, a nonlinear mixed effects model, for example. So what's really neat about this is that if we have the situation so if we have a simple linear regression, that's SLR for simple linear regression, and our residuals follow an IID normal distribution with a mean of zero and a variance of sigma squared, then the expected value, and we've said this from other notes, from other um, the expected value, we've said this from other classes, is B0 plus B1 times X in our, in our simple linear regression. We've also said that the expected value of the variance of this thing is equal to this sigma squared, which we estimate from the root mean squared error. We call that the standard error of the square of the standard error of the estimate. So these things. Um, we've, uh, we've stated already. But we're just showing notation uh, to get this started. Since the residuals are IID normal, then the probability density function for the normal applies here. And we can substitute into that probability density function what we know to be the expected values for our mean and our variance. And it looks like this. Our probability density function is the same. I should give myself more room. I'm getting to the punchline, I promise. Probability density function is 1 over 2 pi sigma squared, square root like that, e to the minus, it's a half. And what we're going to do is, instead of putting in uh, the mean of y, the mu, like I did before, we're going to put in our mean function here. So we've got minus 1 half. Instead of yi minus mu, instead of mu, I'm going to put in the mean function. That's uh, b0 plus b1x. And we've got sigma there, and this whole thing is squared like that. Yuck. Now, the likelihood then can be expressed, okay, the likelihood, since we have a whole bunch of data, and each one of those observations 
comes from this distribution. Because our residuals are IID normal and their expected mean is B0 plus B1x. And their variance is, or our standard deviation is sigma. So our data, the residuals, our data come from this distribution. That's what we've said over there on the right. So we can express the probability of our data set as the joint probability of all the individual data, which is the product of this thing evaluated for all the values of i. The trick is that simplifies the likelihood function of our intercept and our slope given that uh, we have some variance simplifies to the product here of this function. Now, a little, a little simplified notation, the only thing that changes in this thing is xi every time. That, that this sigma is a constant here, but for every observation in our data, you have a different xi. So the only way this thing changes is that you have a whole bunch of these distributions, and so the product of a whole bunch of things can just be expressed in the exponents. I'm out of time. I should quit now. I'm trying to rush through, and that's not a good thing when it's messy, and even I have to read my notes to make sense of this before I teach it. So we'll finish this up uh, with, the, with the final. Maybe I'll make a handout for you so you don't have to scrawl it all down on, um, on Wednesday. Where I want to leave you with this is maximum likelihood is a really tidy way of estimating parameters like B0 and B1 because the best values of our slope and intercept are going to be the ones that maximize the joint probability of our data. And if we can find them, and I'll show you on Wednesday there's an analytical way, um, then it's an easy solution that makes intuitive sense. Maybe. Intuitive is relative, isn't it? <laughs> What's intuitive to you may not be intuitive to me. Particularly, it might not be intuitive to you if it's not intuitive to me and I'm trying to teach it. Okay, let's leave it there. And we'll carry on on Wednesday. I'll have a little handout so you don't have to write so much of this down. And um, I'll have some new homework for you. And if you've got your homework for me, paper's fine, or, or email it today. And we'll see you on Wednesday. Thank you.